Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thank you so much again for being a part of this conversation. We, Brandon and I, we absolutely love doing what we're doing. Today we have another great interview. Uh, Before we get into that, Brandon, you got anything uh, just awesome that's happening in your life right now? Anything going on? Anything awesome? That's a good question. You know, you know. I remember I had a professor uh, in college who said we have to be very careful about how we use the word awesome yeah, I because know. God is awesome. That's right. You know, but at the same point, at the same time, I'm from California, so saying awesome is is pretty pretty standard operating procedure. So well, and God yeah. is working in our lives, right? I, I mean, the that's spirit true. in us or not. So that's what I'm looking at and going, what's God doing, right? So it, yeah. it should be awesome if God's working through us, right? Yeah. So yeah. So every so yeah, so yes, and then I also think of a Lego Movie, great movie. Everything, Everything is awesome. Everything is awesome. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's that's great, right. So anyways, well, it's interesting what's, what's, too. Yeah. On that note, I I listened to a, a, an episode of Corey doing an Enneagram Journey podcast, I guess. Corey is our guest today and the sevens song, which I'm a seven on the Enneagram pretty much is everything is awesome. So anyway, that's a little segue into who we're going to be talking with today, but any, anything, uh, going back to the question that I asked you, I don't yeah, want to answer no, sorry. It. I'm, I'm just beating around the bush here. You know what? I, I will say, uh, I've been skateboarding more, uh, recently a little nice. bit. Uh, I used to skateboard when I was in high school and now, um, my daughter and, uh, my, my third oldest, my son, uh, are all of a sudden into skateboarding. And that has been kind of awesome. Wow. It's been awesome because they're just like, dad, let's go skate. So that's that, fantastic. Uh, yeah. I could just see you like cruising around. Everyone would think you're this like young hippie dude cruising around on a skateboard. It's true. Fantastic. Yeah, you could I'd see absolutely that. love it. I could Anyways. totally picture it. I could totally could picture you? it. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's fantastic. <laughs> all right, man. So who do we got? Who do we got coming? Who yeah, we got we got Tori Peterson uh, coming on uh, today. She's a former foster youth. She's a mom. Um, she's an advocate for 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 those that have uh, been living in care, and and she's she's just got a remarkable story. Um, she's also got a book coming out uh, in a, in a few months, and um, I was able to get connected with Tori. She had um, she had reached out, and then I was like, oh, I've seen her before because of some mutual contacts and, and was just kind of compelled by, by her story and compelled by, by what God's doing in her life. Um, she, she just has a, such a beautiful outlook and, and such a beautiful family and, and really overcame, you know, uh, quite a bit of hardship as, as, as I imagine we'll hear. So, um, we're excited to get Tori Peterson in here and, and it's going to be, it's going to be a great interview that hopefully encourage us and also give us a insider's view into uh, foster care. Tori, how are you doing? Welcome to the Think Orphan Podcast. I'm doing fantastic, and I'm so grateful to be here with you guys today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are grateful that you're able to be here, too, and uh, just can't wait to get into your your story, what God's done and is doing in and through you. And and so with that, we, we just always love just kind of kicking it off by uh, having you introduce yourself to our audience. I mean, some of them may may know you from different things you've done or, or have been a part of, but can you just uh, introduce yourself uh, to them and, and really just allow us to hear your story just from growing up and 
in the foster care system, now engaging in the foster care world as an adult and you're working with the Beloved Initiative. I'd love to just hear about all that and how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, sure. Um, as you said, I grew up in the system. So I first entered the foster care system when I was four years old. Um, I think, you know, three, four, something like that. You don't have a concept for age or time um, when you're that little. But I, I entered the foster care system because my mom was in a bad situation um, with a guy she was dating and we were living with him. And these uniform men just busted through our door and kind of got all of the bad things in our house, out of our house. I remember they were holding a gun to my mom's head and um, there was a woman who just held me and we walked right past that. And she said, you're just gonna go somewhere for a little while. Mm. And so I entered my first foster home and I was there for, I think about six months. My mom was very adamant on working her plan um, to get me back from what I understand. And I lived with my mom until I was 12 years old. My mom is an amazing saleswoman and she sold vacuum cleaners door to door. So she was rarely ever home, which sounds really sad, but it created a good enough environment for me to stay out of the system and for me to stay at home. Mm. But Going door to door, she was oftentimes in a car. And so she ended up getting in a car accident and that put her on disability, which put her home all the time. And that's when the abuse and neglect just skyrocketed. My mom is diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia. Mm. So I think things are just harder for her. Um, raising a child was just harder for her. And so I re-entered the foster care system and I lived throughout 12 different homes. I was deemed unadoptable and unplaceable after my first home that second time around. And I knew that, you know, my file, that thing that they give offered to foster parents to check out before they have a child placed with them. I knew it was unattractive to foster parents. Um, and I really struggled to form any good relationships. Um, and then I chose to emancipate the day I turned 18. Gave up the idea of ever having a family, but then um, God brought my track coach into my life. And um, he was my mentor, loved me so well and ended up adopting me. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of started my journey towards advocacy once I went to college because people just started to ask me um, my story and asked me to share it at churches. And I just realized through that, you know, when you look at a whole audience and they have tears in their eyes, that's, that's what you have to realize that your story, what God has done in your life is powerful and not telling it um, is really a waste of his good works. And so I just became very motivated to to grow something for myself, to kind of make my story known for the glory of God. So I started on social media. Um, I love social media. I think it's the ultimate equalizer. We all have a story to tell. Um, 
And if we want a platform, that's a great place to start. And then I started the Beloved Initiative, which heart was just to amplify the voices of former foster youth to show them that they have a story, that they're valuable um, and that they're loved. And we've done that through different ways. And recently we've wanted to broaden our reach to just impoverished communities um, and the foster care system. Yeah, that's uh, that's all fantastic. And, you know, I just I was doing a little research and I, it's funny, I don't see it uh, anywhere on your uh, at least what, what I see, maybe it's somewhere, but you also, you also were part of a little pageant recently, um, that that's pretty cool. Um, so tell us about how in the world did all that happen? <laughs> it's such a weird thing to promote. I really try and not be self promoting. I really want to be God promoting mm-hmm. and it's a really hard balance. Um, so in sometime last year probably like a year from now um someone proposed the opportunity for me to do a pageant they said you're pretty you know we know that you do public speaking that's what it's kind of about being pretty and being a spokesperson (laughs) and they were interested they asked if i was interested and i've always viewed pageantry as superficial if i'm honest I've always said I would never do that. Um, Money can be spent better, like people are suffering. And I kind of, I know now that that was pride, Um, kind of like looking at my work as better than women who do pageants, their work. Um, And as I learn more about pageantry, I, I, I always say, I always say, oh, I'm so open to things. You know, I don't want to be a judgmental person. But then I say things like that. And it, <laughs> I can just check myself. I was like, okay, maybe I should do some research on pageantry. And um, I found out that a lot of the women go into pageantry because, like, it is fun. But a lot of all of them have a platform that they speak about um, that they raise awareness for, they raise money for charities. And it's a great avenue to do that, which like, I never knew. I just thought it was a beauty contest and you run around in your swimsuit. And I was just like, I can't, that's not me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, but then I I laid my head down on the pillow like every night. And when I thought about it, I was like, I think there is a side of me in here. Like, I I loved the idea to get dressed up and get my hair and makeup done. One of my favorite thing about my speaking engagements is going to pick out a cute outfit and mm-hmm. doing my hair nice and, you know, kind of stepping out of that, like everyday mom sweats roll. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I just, I was talking to my husband. I was like, I think this sounds really fun. And he was like, well, my husband is so amazing. His answer is always to do it. Yeah. <laughs> do it then. And I was like, yeah. I'm just, I, I was like, I think I'm going to do it. And so um, how I did it is. I signed up. You just have to sign up to become Mrs. Albert Lee. So that's the town I live in, in Minnesota. And then for that, I competed against a bunch of women. I think it was 70. um, And that was all the women competing to be Mrs. Minnesota. And um, I was actually shocked. Like I would, I just wanted, I was like, I just want to be Mrs. Minnesota. That would be really cool. And I am very competitive. So I did, I hired a coach and um, she was very hard on me, which I was used to because I was an athlete. I was like, bring it on. You can tell me anything. I'm thick skin. I think that really helped because a lot of 
women in the pageant industry maybe haven't experienced that. Um, and so I won Mrs. Minnesota and then my coach, she was like, I think you could win Mrs. Universe. Um, she was like, your story is, that's a huge part of it is being a spokesperson. And she was like, your story is so amazing. Um, the way that you're shameless and talking about God. Um, pageantry is typically a very conservative, um, a lot, it depends what system you're in, but a lot of them are conservative and traditional. And so they do like when you bring up God. Um, and she was like, I think you are like, even though you say you're not a pageant girl, you bring all of the things mm. that, that the pageant system wants, um, and just being yourself and the things that I just really had to learn was like wardrobe and how to walk, which that was really, really hard. <laughs> there is a certain very specific way of how to walk. Um, but I just stuck with my coach and even though she was super hard on me, she was in all the best ways. And, um, and she was actually at my pageant in Vegas where I was competing for Mrs. Universe, which was so helpful. Um, she was competing for the classic version, which is like, um, the women 45 and older and to have her there. I think that helped me a lot. Um, cause she just corrected every little thing. and um, because she said that I could win and because I worked really hard, I would say I almost wasn't as shocked when I won Mrs. Universe mm-hmm. as I was when I won Mrs. Minnesota. Yeah. Um, but I was, it wasn't, I wasn't shocked that I won. I was more shocked that other amazing women like also did not win um, yeah. because I was up against yeah a woman who is top five in Miss America, another one who is top three in Miss USA. Um, in pageantry, they call those heavy hitters. And so um, I think I was as shocked as everyone else to beat some really amazing women. But at the same time, um, I was, I was like, okay, like I did it. <laughs> I did <Yeah>. it. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And I imagine that's given you a lot of, uh, well, first of all, I just, I can't wait to go home tonight and tell my mom that she's in the classic category. Um, I think, that, or not my mom, my wife. Did I say my mom? I meant my wife. Editor, can you edit that uh, out, that please? Was that was kind of weird. There, well, especially Phil. since my yeah. mom, my mom would have been in the classic version as well, <laughs> she but she's ultra she's classic vintage, I think would that be, but I can't wait to tell Becca that she's classic. Uh, I tell her that all the time, but not in this, not in this term. Oh, so that's fantastic. Oh, I Sam, will. we will. I don't, we don't edit anything out. That's what <laughs> we love about this thing. Um, I've had a lot worse slip ups than that. People know. Um, so anyway, but, uh, secondly, I bet you've had some great opportunities through that. I mean, I imagine by winning that, that's given you even greater platform to be able to share this story. And, and as you said, to, to kind of swallow your pride and to be able to, I think there's a great lesson there for people you know, we can swallow our pride and say, Hey God, what can you do with this? And I imagine he's, he's given you more than you could would have ever thought, um, going into a little pageant in Minnesota. I was just going to say that I really do feel like it's caused people to take me more seriously. I think as a former foster youth, even though I'm so fortunate that people have given me the microphone a lot more than I think other former foster youth are given the opportunity there was still a lot of barriers, um, to that. And, um, still a lot of, you know, people wonder reasonably. So can I trust this young woman who has 
I mean, cause we should be asking that about anyone we give a microphone, but I think it's, it's a little heavier on people who come from backgrounds of abuse and neglect um, and who struggle in their family background in some way. And I really do feel like Mrs. Universe, I was doing everything that I was doing, but I think it's allowed people, it's, they take me more seriously. And um, even though sometimes I think it is the silliest thing still, because I'm like, guys, I've been doing the same thing. Like I'm still actually the same person. I just have a title, but you know, whatever, whatever for the glory of God, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's good. You know, and, and I want to kind of circle back on your story because I, I think, you know, where God has taken you, Tori, is, is really remarkable, um, you know, but, but somewhere in there is, is also that, that, that girl, right, um, that, was, that was in foster care. And, you know, on this podcast, we talk with people that work in foster care. They um, work with churches that are engaged in foster care, you know, therapists, social workers, um, but when we are able to talk with someone like you that has lived experience, we're like, now we're talking to the real experts. So, you know, when it comes to, you know, foster care, could you maybe help us and just kind of give us an insider's view, you know, of what it was like for you growing up in foster care? You mentioned you had 12 different placements. Um, and I just imagine that there was a lot in there. Can, can you just kind of help our help our listeners really understand, you know, what it's like for foster youth? When I think about how do you describe foster care, like as a whole, all those 12 homes, it really mirrors um, if anyone has been married. I think that's like a really good way of um, explaining it. So you marry, you, you know, you enter into this family, okay, and you have your in-laws and you want to be, and maybe, you know, you should probably, you might even experience this when you're just dating. You enter into this family and you want to be accepted and loved. And so you kind of mold yourself um, to be more like them and they mold themselves maybe to be more like you. That doesn't happen in foster, when you're a foster kid um, as much, but you're definitely mold. You, you have to mold um, to be like the family in small and big ways. And I just always felt like I was like, apologizing you know for being just being and trying to be accepted um not just being the person that not just being like a charity case like the the person that people are serving and giving to but can I like serve and give I'm also an Enneagram too and I think that's been in me since I was a kid and um I think it's just this constant tension of then when you, you feel accepted and you feel like you're maybe understanding the lay of the land a little bit more, um, something happens where, you know, I either sabotage the home because that closeness is scary. Um, and I think they're going to leave anyway, or, you know, they, I was an older kid in the foster care system that second time around. And as we know, a lot of people start being foster parents because they are very interested in adopting younger kids. And so if a younger kid came along, you know, being moved to the next home um, and then, you know, being distraught by that, 
but then still entering the next home and being like, okay, well, I got to be on my A game because I got to be accepted and loved and I got to figure this out here. Yeah. It, it's such, such a hard, you know, reality to feel. And then to, to be in that, in that time where you're still a child or you're still in your adolescence, you're still forming and to feel like your care setting is a place that you have to be performative. You know, that, and, and that is such a much more intimate thing than doing Mrs. Universe, right? I mean, when it's, I'm just, you know, getting up in the morning, right? And I'm having to perform, right? And, well, I'm, you know, 14, 15, and that's not as appealing as a six-year-old or whatever. Um, that, that must be, yeah, I, I think that that's such a, such a difficult reality for, for people to understand. Yes, that word, performative, I, yeah, I couldn't think of a better word than that describing, um, much of my experience. Um, and even at school, some of my, so there was, I'm no one can see me right now, but I'm, if you're just listening to the podcast, I'm a mixed girl. I am black and white. And I went to a school that was predominantly white and I became, um, which really, it was never, it was, it wasn't a problem for me. I was raised by a white mom and, um, my foster parents were predominantly white. It was what I was used to. However, there was another young woman was a mixed girl. She was the only other mixed girl in our whole high school. And we just got, you know, you, when you are, when boys tell you like, oh yeah, I'd love to date you, but like, I don't know what my parents would say. No one can connect over that besides, you know, this other girl and we got very close because of that and um her her parents said that they were always worried about her hanging out with me because I she would you we were young so she would just tell me things she didn't know that like how it would affect me I don't think she meant it illy but she would told tell me that her parents were very scared of her hanging out with me because I was in the foster care system and so because of that, I would, I, and we were just like hung out at school. And so I would try really, like I was a 4.0 student and I remember in the back of my head, I remember thinking, if I get to be valedictorian, I'm going to get on stage and I'm going to say like, see, I told you I was a good kid. Like I thought maybe my grades, if, mm -hmm. if I can't prove that because you don't see me when I'm at home, like maybe I can just show you through my grades. Like everything was me trying so hard to prove myself to my community and my parents so that I could just be a normal kid or be accepted. Yeah. And, and it makes me want to ask, and, and for our listeners, they kind of know that this is where my mind basically goes all the time is looking at this systematically. Like, um, so you, you know, like you said, you were an excellent student, you were an athlete, you know, you, you, did your best to, to please. Nobody's perfect, of course, but you did your best to please. You also dealt a really rotten, you know, hand of cards. Um, and yet you were plugged into this foster care system that you bounced around in. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't awesome. Um, so if you could kind of step back and reimagine or reinvent, you know, based off of your lived experience in foster care, so, so having intimate knowledge of the, of the system in Ohio, if you could, you know, reimagine or reinvent how foster care works in Ohio or just more broadly in the States, what would you do to change 
you know, foster care? Yeah. So in 2014, that was the year I emancipated. So this did not benefit me in any way. Uh, But in 2014, the Normalcy Act passed. And that said that youth in out-of-home care can participate in the same extracurriculars, the same activities like going to friend's house um, as children, like biological children do, um, children who are not in out-of-home care. I think I would have benefited from that policy a lot because I felt very isolated in the foster care system. As I said, like, I would ask to go to a friend's house and their parents were kind of like, they they had to know I was in the system because I had to ask for background check, fingerprints, and proof of license and insurance if I ever wanted to go to a friend's house, which like, that just sends a red flag to people. Like, they're like, why does this girl have to do that? Like, she's got to be trouble or, and, and a lot of people are just like sketched out by that. They're like, I don't want to go do fingerprints for this chick to come over to my house. And there's also not enough time. Like people invite me to their house for a week and background checks can take weeks. So I think um, the Normalcy Act passed. However, there are counties that still do not adhere by it because foster care is a county to county thing. Um, it can, you can, a federal law can pass, but a county can really throw it out the door. And so um, I would say that that is seriously like one of the most important things developmentally, socially for youth in foster care. And the second thing I would say is we need to do something different with the foster care file. I when So I started this thing called F the file and it stands for fight the file. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea is that, is that we wanna rewrite foster youth's files. Um, and this stemmed from mostly because I was deemed unadoptable, unwanted, you know, very early on. And when a child has that spoken over them from the very beginning, I don't, it's going to be impossible for them to form any relationships. Mm-hmm. When we have a first impression with someone and we know that it's a bad first impression, you know, that makes us, if we go to meet that person again, it does make us self-conscious and we're constantly trying to prove that that for bad first impression, like it was just a fluke or we're like, oh my God, there's not even a point to have a relationship with this person. If we have a bad first impression in a job interview, we don't get, we don't get the job. If we have a bad first impression on our first date, we don't get a next date. And so if you think about that in terms of the foster care system, it's like these kids don't even have control of their first impression. It's instantly bad because they are they have a file that talks about the worst things that have ever been done to them and the worst things that they've possibly ever done. And then they have to like constantly fight against that. And if you, I could literally go on forever. This will be the last thing I say in terms of this, because it is, it is my whole heart, um, is that we are really, I think healing begins and ends with identity. When we know who we are and what we're capable of that they're, that God has a purpose and plan for our life, that's what allows us to overcome and be resilient. But when we have the opposite spoken over our identity in a concrete file that never goes away, I think that's just really, that's really weighty. And when we look at other parts of, there's only one part really of our system of our culture that has that. 
and that's inmates. And 80% of inmates in America are involved at have been involved in the foster care system and 76.6 get rearrested within five years of being released. And that's the one thing that they have in common is that they have a file that follows them around that speaks to the worst of the worst things that they've ever done or that have been done to them. And that is all. That's a crazy hard thing to escape. So well said, Tori. And um, so what we're what we're really hearing and learning from your experience is just how these systems can actually stigmatize children, right? Because you're saying that's your first impression, right? And they also isolate, you know? So in children that are in foster care that are bouncing around from one placement to another, now I know with you, you were able to stay at the same school, which is a very positive thing, but still your, your, your setting at home was changing from one to another. That's also isolating just kind of in and of itself. So we do actually need these um, systems changed. Um, and even what you're saying there, as far as, um, you know, you know, in the place that you were, it was a county by county was was kind of uh, dictating, you know, what policies were were implemented and which ones weren't. Um, some states are at the county level, some are at the state level. There's a lot of complexity here. There's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of policy and regulation. But at the end of all of these things, there are foster youth just like you uh, were, you know, Tori, and just like so many, you know, thousands and thousands of children are. So for those of us that are engaged in the foster care space, for those that are listening to this podcast, please take these things to heart because uh, these policies and what gets implemented, they have a real effect on real children and youth. And uh, Tori, thank you for, for helping us understand that even better from yours. I would just, you know, one of the things with what you were talking about with like having a background check and all of that for uh, going over to a friend's house, um, you know, if I put on my my professor hat for a second, one of the things that I talk with my students about is this um, basically this continuum between child protection and child participation. And these are both valuable things, but they're also things that we have to hold in tension um, because sometimes we will err too far on one side versus the other. So when we're saying you have to background check, you know, just for the kid, for the foster kid to go over, you know, to such and such friend's house, um, but the bio kids doesn't have to do that. While that might sound nice from a protection standpoint, because that kid has potentially gone through abuse or some other thing that led to them being separated from their biological family. um, At the same time, you are overdoing it on the protection side and you're not giving that child the freedom to just participate. Just to, just to participate in normal life. So um, what you just gave, I'm going to actually use that example next time I talk foster care with my students because I think that that's a really prime example of, of getting the tension wrong. We do need to, we, those are two valuable things, child protection and child participation, but we have to find the right balance between those two things so that we're not overly constricting children but also not leaving children uh, out to uh, you know, potential harmful situations. So thank you so much for, for highlighting that. I, I have one question that I'm just dying to ask. Um, and this comes from your lived experience. It's, it's not on the sheet I sent you. I apologize. Um, and this is your first time meeting me, Tori. I'm, I'm an adoptive father, just FYI. Um, so one of, the, one of the things that goes around kind of um, in our space, and when I was a missionary in Tanzania, I was largely oblivious to this. Um, but um, one of the things that does go around in our space is basically this idea that adoption is trauma, okay? I don't know if you've heard this, this term, 
but basically this understanding that um, to be adopted is traumatic. Um, now, what what I uh, believe is that any kid that has become separated from their biological family has gone through trauma. Separation itself is traumatic. Um, whatever reasons, it could be abuse, neglect, something else, the loss of a parent. Those things are traumatic. And adoption can be done poorly. Um, and at the same time, though, um, adoption can be restorative in some regards for kids that have gone through trauma. So I ask this of you because uh, you're a mother. You also, um, when you're track coach, which I know uh, Phil is just dying to learn more about because of his emphasis on sports and coaching, but when he, he adopted you, I, I assume you were an adult. So you have this experience of living in care, um, having this challenging relationship with your mom and then having to go into foster care. Now you're a mother. You were adopted at, at an older age. What is your kind of view on the role that adoption plays? Um, where is it done wrong? Where is it done right? And, and is, it, is it necessary, you know, for some kids that are um, outside of parental care? I'm going to be bold here and say that the claim that adoption is traumatic, I disagree. <laughs> um, I think that loss is traumatic. Um, I think that being separated from your first family is traumatic. Um, and I say this like seriously with, um, love and because if there is a former foster youth who is listening to this or an adoptee who's listening to this, I just like to pose the question, um, are we, you know, with, when it comes to adopted parents, or significant others, you know, those are the people who are closest to us. And that means that it's really easy for them to be our lightning rods. And I'm saying this because I've done it. And so I think it's really important that we ask questions like about, are we, are we setting um, blame or um, are hurt in the right places? Um, are we things are hurtful because we actually are struggling to say that something else is hurtful. Um, I think it's just important to really reflect on our words um, because words just, they really matter. And in a lot of cases, you know, adoption is very healing, especially for youth who are older. Um, there are 120,000 kids who are waiting to be adopted in foster care right now. And, and just in America, and, you know, I think about those videos that um, organizations do, and those are kids who are, like, waiting, you know, feeling, un like, literally feeling so unwanted. They have to, like their file being known of like their existence, just being known in the foster care system is not enough. Like they have to put a video out there. They have to be vulnerable. Um, that is how much they want the restoration of family and the restoration of relationships. And for me, yeah, I do feel that adoption was very healing because 
I, I was, I moved throughout 12 different homes and going back to that file thing, like my file said I was unadoptable and that, that book, the body keeps the score. If you're in this realm, you've at least heard of it. Um, in it, the author says when it comes to healing trauma, you know, psychiatric medication is good. Different modalities of therapy, like talk and EMDR are good, but he says the number one healer of trauma, the most efficient way to do it is lived experiences that directly contradict the traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like being called unadoptable, being labeled all of mm -hmm. these terrible things, then having someone come. Um, and again, like I didn't have a father figure. I grew up with a single mom. So having this man come and just contradict all of this trauma of not having a father, of being labeled these things that really were like a dark cloud over my head that I didn't know if I was ever going to escape even as an adult and him prove all of that wrong by saying, no, you belong in my family. You are adoptable. I love you. Um, even when I slammed doors in his face and cussed at him and said, oh, you don't want me over and over again. He just said, no, like, I do want you. I love you. And this family is, it's your family. Um, and I often think, what I see is that adoption contradicts so much of the trauma that we've been through. Um, and I think that adoption right now is getting a really bad rep um, because it, and I will say it is done wrong in, a, in some ways. I do think that oftentimes with infant adoptions, um, moms are pressured um, to, they're not pressured to parent. They're pressured to put their babies up for adoption, especially if they're young or impoverished, because we just instantly think, oh, you're, this baby's going to have a better chance. Um, when actually we do see the research that when children stay with their parents, there are a lot of benefits to that, um, especially if their parents are just struggling with just struggling with drugs or if it's neglect. Um, it's usually it's we see in research that it's better for moving if there is abuse involved, but when it's those neglect cases, we do see that it's better for children to reunite with their parents oftentimes. Um, and so I think, I think a lot of birth parents aren't given um, the opportunity to parent as much as they're given the opportunity to adopt. It is so much easier to you know, say, oh, this baby's going to go in a healthy family rather than like walking someone through everything they need to learn um, to be a healthy, happy family. Um, and so I think on the other side, um, there are questions that adoptees and foster youth need to ask themselves. There are also questions that social workers um, need to ask themselves. And that's like, are we doing everything in our power um, to exhaust all options, not just the easiest option for our job. Yeah, man, there's so much there. We could talk for hours and hours. I think, I think, uh, we'll, we'll need to get you back on to, to talk about that. And then Brandon, instead of just talking about it in your class, I think you need to get Tori to, to guest lecture via zoom in your I would class love to have her. up for it, but no, uh, that would be great. Um, cause that would be fantastic to be able to I would to, love that. It'd be yeah. so fun. That would be way better than hearing from Brandon. That's for hey, sure. Hey, hey, you don't um, have to make I mean, a slight. Out I didn't of it. say Come it'd be bad. I didn't say it'd be <laughs> bad listening to you. I just said it'd be way better. Um, you know, it's 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 uh it's it's so anyway, the uh the 
the thing about when, one of the things you said there, I loved talking about that um, quote from the body keeps score. Cause it, it reminds me too, of just when people talk about, and you, you talk about words matter and to say adoption is trauma. I love how you distinguished and made the distinction of what, where the trauma actually is. Cause the, you know, are there adoptions that are disrupted? Yes. But, but adoption itself is not the trauma is elsewhere, right? In adoption, it's a beautiful thing that, that God models with us through scripture, right? So that, that's that I think we, it really is. We need to be careful with our words. I love how you said that, but also that idea of how can we replace the trauma with something better, right? And, and that's that the book, you know, the books on habit and habit formation, the power of habit and, and, and atomic habits talks about that in order to really overcome, you know, bad habits, it's to replace the response, the trigger and the response with something better. And it's not just replace it with something. It's something better. It's gotta be something better. And that's what I love what you said there. It just reminded me of that to say, you know, that that's the, how can we replace this trauma with something better? And it's gotta be consistent. It's gotta be real. And it's gotta be something that is, is something that, that comes and is consistently there, um, and, and reliable and, and credible too. So that goes to, you, you've mentioned that just track coach. I want to get dive deeper a little bit into that. I mean, I, I'm a soccer coach. I absolutely love the relationship that I get to have with, with, uh, coach girls at the high school level. And, and, you know, I'm in a, the suburbs here, so I don't get a lot of, of, you know, the, the same brokenness that I might if I was in the inner city, but there are, there's some of my players are, are, have gone through rough life circumstances and to be able to pour into them, to be able to bring them into my family and, and in not necessarily officially, so to speak, but for us, it is, man, it's, it's, they're part of our family. I mean, they're, there are, there are daughters and, and, and nieces, whatever you want to call it. But, um, you know, what, one of the things you wrote about that in your, in your blog about that relationship with the, the track coach who did end up adopting you is, uh, speaking encouragement and life into people's situations can change the trajectory of life and become a domino effect. We don't have to be ministers to do ministry. We don't have to be a missionary to be on mission. Scott, who I assume is your track coach portrayed God's love and devotion to me as a coach. So with that, I, I, I love that what you said there in that, in that little excerpt from one of your blogs, but can you share about that relationship, but also about how we can be on in ministry continually and that sport is in particular, but, but really any coaching type relationship teachers as well can really go deeper into this, um, into the relationships we have and to be able to impact children, um, in the foster system, but also children just from hard places who may not have that love and that connection at home that they, that we'd hope that they'd have. Yeah. I think above all else where we have to start is we have to see foster youth, um, underserved youth, youth who have grown up in impoverished situations. We have to be able to see them differently than, um, culture sees them Mm. because when I think about my relationship with my track coach and how it started. Um, I know that, and he's told me he's confirmed it. People were like, you need to stay away from that girl. She's mm. a troublemaker. She's crazy. And, um, I was a transfer to my high school. So I, I, my first year of high school, seriously, um, one of the best things my caseworkers did was keeping me in the same school. But my first year, 
um, of high school, I did go to a different school. And then the next three years, I stayed in the same school. So I transferred to the school I graduated from. And um, people were like, yeah, she's good at, she's like, all right at track, good at track, but um, not a good kid. And he met me, he said he met me for the first time. And the first thing he thought was, that is not a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. That is a hopeless girl. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, what he saw was right. Like, I just felt so lost in like there was so little hope in my life. Um, and I think him seeing me differently than everyone else is why our relationship could go to where it was because he was willing to step into the place that no one else was willing to step into. He was not threatened by the things that people said about me. He wasn't threatened by a lot of people were very scared of my birth mom. Um, because she was, she would come at you. It's just, it's just who she is. And, um, he just wasn't scared. Like he wasn't scared of her. And he was like, this is a girl that like needs hope. That's what he said. So this is a girl who needs hope. And so I'm just going to try and help her. And, you know, the first two years of our relationship, he was, that's what I would say. He was just there. And I just became, I think one of the, another hard thing about the foster care system is that when you're placed into a home, it's like, okay, here, this person is make a relationship with them. Like it's so boom, it's just instant where with my track coach, it was so naturally progressive. Um, we were able to build a relationship kind of on our own merit on our own time. So it wasn't as scary. And then when we got to my, at the end of my junior year, that's just when he really I think he, you know, he probably wanted to wait to see like, is what I see in this girl true? Um, Because I don't want to, he probably like, he didn't want to make false promises to me because, you know, that's the other side of it is either not speaking life into people or, you know, lying to them over encouraging to where things like aren't true. And you can get discouraged in that too. And he said, he was just like, I really believe that you know, things can change with you. And I think you can go on to win the state track meet. And I think you can get a scholarship to college. And it was so specific, like, like I could win the state track meet and I could get a scholarship to college. And I was like, we were literally the only two people on the track when he said that. And I thought, is he talking to me? Like, I was like, is he, I literally thought, is he on the phone right now? Because no one had ever said stuff to me like that. And I was just like, I was kind of like, okay, yeah, whatever. And then he was like, you're going to have to do everything. If you, if you want to do that, you're going to have to do everything I say. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do everything he says. And if that doesn't work out, then I'm just going to blame him. It's going to be his fault. (laughs) And I, I I did everything he said. I ate what he told me to eat. I slept. He was like, you need to get like eight to 10 hours of sleep every night. Like don't be getting less than eight hours of sleep a night. I did everything. Um, and I did go on to be a five-time state champion. Um, I am an All-American. I went on to get a full-ride scholarship to college. And I really do, it was more than, um, it was even more than him speaking life into me. It was him showing me that the things that he said about me were true in the way that like, I wasn't just worthy of winning a state track meet. Like I was worthy of uh, being with 
day in and day out. And I was worthy of pouring all this time and energy into, even if no one else thought that. And that really, it really did it with, with also, you know, at the same time, there's the word of God that I'm going to church every Sunday with my foster mom and what Jesus says about me and what Scott says about me, like they are aligning. And it, it just gave me this confidence of who I was. And it, it goes back again to heal, like healing begins and ends with identity. Mm -hmm. And my identity, it was just rewritten all of a sudden, like in the course of a year. And I was like, even though this is, you know, totally taking the scripture out of context, I know that now that, um, (laughs) but like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me that like, yes, all those great theologians are going to be like, that is not how you use that scripture. (laughs) But when you are, when you come, when you come from a background where you have so little and you don't believe in yourself, I do think that the goodness of God allows us to use these out of context scripture, um, for his glory. And I just, I did, I started to believe Philippians 4.13. And I started to believe the things that my track coach said over me. And I, I wonder all the time, like, there is, I just don't think I would be where I am today. There's no way. I don't even know how I'd be where I am today if it wasn't for him. Um, whenever I do these podcasts and I'm like paid to speak and stuff, I'm starting to think like, I need to give him a percentage because, (laughs) because I mean, he, he, he's such a huge part of who I am. Um, what God did through our story I, I, I don't even know. I'm, there's never enough words to explain the depth um, of what he's done for me. Well, I love it. And I, I would imagine if, if you were to say that to him, I'm, I, you need a percentage. He'd say you've given him more than you could ever uh, give in money. I, I know that as a coach. I mean, I'm, I'm tearing up here because I'm just thinking about my players and I'm just thinking about in 10 years when they're doing stuff like you're doing and, and they're living life and doing what God's created them to do, man, that's, that's going to be, it's going to be amazing. I can't wait for that. And I imagine when he listens to this and I'm sure he, if he knows about him, I guarantee he's listening to your, your podcast interviews and he's just beaming with pride, no doubt. Um, cause, uh, I can just, you know, I know I'd like him. We'd be buds for sure. So, um, I'm grateful for him pouring into you for that because, I mean, we get the gift of being able to have this conversation. We get the gift of, of being able to hear, um, and you being able to impact so many lives, no doubt. And talking about what, you know, we talk about and, and it's true. It's knowing who you are and whose you are, right? It's identity. It's knowing that God's created you. That's the prayer I pray over my kids every night, that they'll know the purposes God's created them for, and they'll use them for his glory and his honor. And, and that is, I, I think my kids are like, why do you pray this every night? Because if there's one thing you remember after you leave this home, I want it to be this, that you're created for God and you're created for his, he's created you for good works, purposeful for you and you alone. He's created you for amazing things. And I want you to know him and I want you to do them for him. So I know that's what you're doing. And I have no doubt that, uh, that Scott is beaming with with pride so i'm 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 proud i'm proud for him right now 
Um, <laughs> so you, you're like legitimate. This is this is like we're going to church right now. I dude, love it. I'm fired Boy, up. You bring you're bringing the message and and Phil's. Yeah. You know, so in anyway. Tanzania, there's always two sermons, so I feel like I'm getting yeah. it right now. Like, so, Corey has a message. Phil, it's great. <laughs> I, I for those of you for those out there who know me, you know that uh, you know it doesn't. It, it, I'm a, I'm a crier, so that that's for sure. But it's usually sports movies that get me crying. So this is kind of a sports movie here. Kind of like a sports um, movie. So I feel I feel like it. So remember the Titans. I could watch that a million times, and I'm gonna cry every time. I'm not gonna you know <laughs> miracle. It it's like gets me every time. It's funny. So anyway, uh, that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. Uh, you know. So there we go. We're you know. You're in Minnesota right now too, so there it is. That's like you, you got it, you got it. So, um, my wife actually was born in Minnesota, in Minneapolis as well. So there's another little something. But anyway, um, so all that you're gonna be writing. You're writing a book, or you've written a book, presumably since it's coming out in August. Um, so uh, that's a lot of work. But w- what you know. Why did you write it? What do you hope people will 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 learn from it and get from it? What impact do you hope that someone reads your book, picks it up, reads it? What do you hope they're taking away from it and doing with it? Yeah, so I started writing because I was really hoping that there was a girl like me who was in the foster care system um, who would find my writing and who would think. I am not alone. And I didn't necessarily want to offer solutions. I just wanted people to see themselves and start to be able to kind of figure out, you know, what goes on in their brain and understand what they've been through and how they can overcome it. And um, above all else, understand their true identity in Christ. because in the system, you can be told that there's not a home for you, but God says, I have a place in a kingdom for you. And in the system, you know, it, we can, it can be said that we're orphans or we don't have a family and God says, I've adopted you. Like I'm a king, like, and I've adopted you. So like these people on earth, like that ain't nothing. And I just really, I want um, youth in foster care to know that um, because that has been the thing that even as an adult, all those thoughts, you know, come, just come rushing in like a waterfall of just like, you're doing it wrong. You know, you really don't belong. You're out of place. Um, But then when I just go open my Bible and you know, I can, I can open my Bible to anywhere, any, any page. And I am reminded of who I am, who I actually am. And there's just nothing more secure and nothing more healing than that. And so, um, I, I don't, I try not to be too preachy in the book. I really just try and tell a story that brings, um, youth's hearts, to that, to that conclusion. And I also hope that foster parents, you know, group home workers, caseworkers, people, anyone who works in the child welfare realm or who loves a good survivor memoir um, can take hold of that and, and see how do we rewrite 
these youth's identities? How do we tell them who they truly are? Um, I really do, I think it's for anyone who wants to touch the lives of underserved people and who have um, an evangelistic heart um, to do that. Wow, that's uh, I, I can't think of a better reason for a book to be written than to come alongside, you know, foster youth that um, that are going through challenges that have gone through challenges and need to not feel like they're isolated. Right. That need to feel like there's no stigma here, like God loves you and uh, you're not alone. You know, so I, I just so uh, the name of the book is Fostered. Um, it's going to be releasing in August. Uh, did I get that right? It's fostered. It's being released by B&H on August 30th. And um, I really do, you know, pre-orders are very, they're very important for authors, but I really do feel like with this book, they are, they're more important than ever because when I was in the system, and again, it goes back to those normalcy rules, I wasn't allowed on social media. Um, I wasn't allowed on the computer and that's my biggest platform is social media. And so I don't know how kids are going to get this book um, unless it's in stores. And the way you put books in stores is you pre-order them. So that stores say, oh, there are enough people ordering this um, so that it's it's on a shelf. And I, I didn't know that. Um, when I started writing, I thought every book, just every book goes to store. Um, but that would be a lot of books, I guess. But I, I actually, I titled it Fostered um, because I wanted, I really wanted kids to be just walking through the aisle at Walmart or at Target or at Barnes and Noble and then to see that word. Because when, when you're in foster care and you see the word foster, you're like, what is that? Um, and I hope that it draws in their attention enough um, so that they just pick up the book in curiosity. Yeah. So yes, if you want the book, please pre-order it. Um, that would mean the world to me because that's yes. how we're going to get it in the hands of the kids who need it the most. Absolutely. And, and we'll of course be sharing it on our social media and we will have a link to pre-order uh, this book when, when the show uh, goes live. And uh, this is just a uh, this is just remarkable. So, uh, Tori, we do have a couple uh, questions that we ask all of our guests. These are just kind of quick, rapid fire. Uh, I may already kind of know the answer to the second one. <laughs> I think it might kind of be obvious, but uh, we do like to uh, yeah get people resources. So uh, the first question that we ask all of our guests. Uh, and you can't, you can't, you can't name your own book, which we will faithfully promote because it sounds like an amazing uh, book, amazing resource, and you have an incredible story. But other than your own, what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your think on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable and foster children uh, with excellence? Okay, I'm going to give you two. I'm sorry, I can't just give you one. Um, so how we should just love people in general. Um, it's called The Furious Longing of God, and it is by Brennan Manning. I feel like it is so just given me a heart to, to I just want to love people well every time after I read that book. And then if we're specifically talking um, about youth and foster care, 
it has to be, I know you guys have already promoted this book, but I'll just do it again. Foster the Family by Jamie Finn. She did do an excellent work with that book. And even as a former foster youth, I read that book and look at it and I see my, I see myself in it. And I think of how like I have yet to heal and things that I, I mean, it's, it's a book for everybody. She killed it. She's amazing. She's amazing. She really is. Uh, so for our listeners, that's episode 192 of Think Orphan. Uh, Jamie, Jamie is remarkable and she has a, a good mind about these things. So please uh, definitely pick up Jamie's book as well, uh, which also released this year. Um, and uh, yeah, those are great recommendations. And Brennan, man, that was impressive, Brandon. I just want to say that was impressive that you just whipped out that episode number like it was just like you knew she was going to answer that, which you yeah. didn't. I'm just like, we don't have a producer. That was like somebody fed that to you. I felt like I was on like some big time production no. podcast here, dude. That was awesome. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why that is. Because when okay. I put it in Apple, I accidentally no, missed don't, it. Don't, don't, put no, 193, don't, don't, and I was like, oh, us. no, I messed it up. No, so I had to go back and be like, no, it was 192 for Jamie. Uh, so it was only, just, that's no, how I remembered I wanted it, so it to quickly. be like, you're like, you got it, man. Just steal trap up there. <laughs> There's no mistakes. No, go. No, All right. No. Keep going. Anyways. Sorry. Uh, all right. So aside from that, Brendan Manning, though, he's amazing. I heard him speak um, when he was still, you know, before he before he passed on. Uh, he's 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 incredible. He's incredible. If you guys haven't read Brendan Manning stuff, it is so moving. All right. Um, all right. Uh, second. And again, this may be the one that we already know the answer to. But what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan, vulnerable children and I'm throwing in foster children with excellence? Um, because I talk so much about Scott, um, I'm going to say that I've learned a lot about my husband. I've learned a lot from my husband. Um, Jacob is truly an amazing man who I think he's taught me so much because he comes from a background of, you know, total opposite, total opposite of me, very stable family. Um, and he has just now kind of I have, I really kind of forced him into a life of, we are serving the underserved. Um, we are going to help the poor and I don't care if you're uncomfortable and, and, and kind of harsh at times I've been harsh at times. And for him to just be like, yeah, we're to just be brave. Um, and I, and just to, to do it, even though it is so out of his comfort zone growing up when my mom me and my mom would go on drives and she would always pick up the homeless person because she wasn't scared she hung out with the homeless people um she hung out with the druggie like she just wasn't scared and I think that's in me like I'm not scared but to see Jacob come from the completely opposite background and just be so fearless and bold um so early on in our marriage yeah I I've just learned a lot, a lot from that boldness. I love it. That is so good, Tori. And, and, uh, I would say it's not a single person, but when, when we ask that question, people often will say their spouse. So that's really, really beautiful. Shout out to Jacob. Uh, Tori, this has been such a blessing, such an honor. I know our listeners are going to just going to be so encouraged and challenged, uh, to better love foster youth, um, and better, uh, reach out to kids in need. Um, so, uh, Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for the book that you wrote. And uh, thank you for all that you're doing to uh, love foster youth with excellence. 
Thank you guys so much for having me. It was a true pleasure. Um, and I really think you should keep that part in there about your mom. Oh, it, oh we will. It's, it's all going to be in there. It's uh, yeah. Well said. All right. <laughs> Blessings to you, Tori. Well, that was a uh, man. I feel like when we get to have these conversations with care experienced people, there's just something there's just something more. You know, we get to talk with experts and therapists and just people that are running these fantastic organizations, but there is just something special. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I was reminded of our conversation earlier this season with uh, Grace and Sinet, and these conversations are just special. But uh, what did you think, Tori? What did you think, Tori? You're not Tori. What did you think, Phil, I about Tori? <laughs> I have never, I've never ever, and I will say this, never been asked to be in a pageant. That's, that's no. for sure. Um, and I don't do think, well. I don't think I'd do well. <laughs> I, I really don't. I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't. I and mean, we won't go down that. We won't go down that line any more than that. It just, it would not be pretty. So, um, no pun intended. So anyway, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a, a great interview. I think going to your point, like, I just think it's, I think sometimes we take ourselves too seriously. Like when it comes to, we're quote unquote, an expert in something and not to knock any, we have had amazing people on this and there's been incredible content in this whole thing. But I think sometimes we feel like, and we as the, uh, me as the host and a lot of them and the interviewer and you, and we feel like we have to ask this question or that, but we, I think it's just, it's, it's just fun, you know? And I think we, we do that. We try to do that. And I think I try to do that in, in every interview, but I just think we were able to go in it's real life. It's story. It's talking about, I think she talked about it with the body keeps the score quote, that, that idea of, you know, when we have real life experiences that, that counter the trauma and that that's the best healing. And I think that it is healing. And I think when, when I talk, I did another interview with how soccer explains leadership on a, a guy who survived nine 11 and talking about how he tells his story over and over. And that helps him through the PTSD and through the, the trauma and hearing Tori say similar things, you know, and to be able to speak that, speak that into it. So there's some of that. And, and, uh, you know, it's just, it was, it was fun. And, and it always helps when I totally, you know, slip up and say stupid things that, that, that helps for sure. Um, which, you know, happens, happens often. I think as I'm getting older, it happens more and more. So that's, that's okay though, you know, and, uh, you, you, some people might think I do it on purpose. I, I don't, it's not scripted folks. We know that nothing's true. scripted in this show. So uh, it's just, it is, it's just natural. So anyhow, yeah, so I, I love this interview. I absolutely, if you couldn't tell folks, I, I, I did actually cry during that. It wasn't fake. It was real. And that's because it, it does. And this story just totally connected with me. I love, I love hearing that she was just impacted and, and it, and she allowed it too, right? Like, cause that's something that people forget. It's, it's a two way street. She could have said, no, forget you, man. I'm, I'm done. I'm out of here. There's no way I'm not good enough. I can't do this. But, but God put that in her and allowed her to, to swallow that pride and to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to trust him. I love how she said it. Cause it was just so real. Like I told, I told him, fine, I'll do what you say and I'll blame you if it doesn't work. And I, I could totally hear some of my players, actually some of my kids saying that to me, like, fine, fine, you know, whatever. Yeah. But we as coaches, you know, Hey, we'll take it. Whatever, whatever the motivation, yeah. man. Yeah, let's go because we do see that in our players and he saw that in her and he knew that that was true. 
and, you know, and it doesn't always work out that it happens, but it actually did with her, you know, that she did win states. She did do these things that he, that he said she could do, but he knew that he saw it in her. And, and sometimes that's what it takes for us is other people seeing in us. And, you know, oftentimes in all fairness to parents out there too, even with intact parents, sometimes it takes someone other than the parents seeing it in the player. That's why I say to coaches, you have, you have a responsibility, you have an ability to do things that no other person in the world can speak truth into some of these kids. So that's mm -hmm. a big responsibility. And I, coaches, that's why I do all I do with coaches. That's why I'm doing the coaching, the bigger game program, because we are, we're, we're, it is a bigger game than just the, whatever sport we're coaching. It's we, to see this, I mean, this is a perfect example with Tori. Yep. Like he coached her in track, but he coached her in life. Yeah. And now she's doing what she's doing because he spoke truth into her that nobody else was speaking. And he's the only one who could do that at that point in time. And he did it, fortunately, because, man, we wouldn't have the joy of having that last conversation. So anyway, okay. I'm gonna, I could go on. Like you said, that could be a third sermon for us here. Yeah. And well, we're not going to do that. But that's, that's how I felt with it. We went long on the interview, so we won't go much longer here. But what, what do you got? What, what, what are your thoughts on it other than well, what I just, you already shared? Her, her story is so good. Her perspective on foster care is so good. Uh, just so insightful. It, it's like one of those things where it's like we don't even want to just relegate to her to saying she has such an inspiring story. She does, but man, she's like a legit advocate, like absolutely knowledgeable, like saying this policy was messed up and, you know, we should do that. And like, she's just like all around legit, like in my book, uh, just really impressed with Tori. Um, you know, I, her, I keep, we keep saying her coach, he's her dad, you yeah, know, her dad. like, like, right. no, you absolutely. know, it's like I coach my daughter. But it's like dad becomes coach. This is coach becomes dad. Yeah, you know, exactly. like that, that, that's just I like such it. a cool story. It's awesome. And, the you know, the other thing that she put in there at the end about her and her husband, this is a this is something that that I've kind of um, I've heard. And I'm like, oh, man, that's actually really, really uh, awesome for us to remember, especially for adoptive parents. Attachment is not easy. Attachment yep. is 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 a challenge, like especially when the kid is bounced around or they were in an orphanage or they um, went through traumatic experiences. Attachment becomes hard. This is one thing. And she didn't say this, but she talked about her relationship with her husband. Um, sometimes kids that um, have a disorganized attachment um, and they're trying to attach with the parents and it's hard, they might get like some level of attachment. Sometimes their best attachment is actually with their spouses. And mm. that can be an incredibly healing uh, experience for, mm. for those that have, um, that have, you know, gone through attachment issues based on, you know, their trauma or separation or so forth. So um, she didn't say that, but I just want to encourage our listeners, especially those that are adoptive parents, be praying for, you know, your kid's future spouse, you know, and that goes across the board, like even if there aren't attachment issues. Um, but that can be a very transformative thing as well. So yep. anyways, uh, all right. those are two things, but man, we are pushing it now. So, uh, hey, I don't know, you know if we have any recommendations. I'll just turn it over to you, man. Here's the thing, you know, I'm not going to let you recommend cause you do some systems theory book. So we're not going <laughs> to do that today, but, um, we, I, I just want to remind you, you know, I'm going to say, first of all, go watch some of the sports movies, you know, just, just go cry, go cry watching sports movies. Um, so that's one thing, but I don't want to, I, I want to just remind you, go, go, go pre-order that book. 
you know, we're going to have that link in the show notes. Go just either click on the link in the show notes, go to Amazon, check it out because, you know, and, and again, to remind you, it's called fostered. Very simple. It's not a, not a, not a big, uh, hard book title. Remember. So go check it out, get it. Like she said, pre-order it because we do want that on the shelves. I, I actually, I wrote a book and I didn't even think it's probably why my book wasn't on a lot of shelves because I didn't, I didn't know that. And I didn't talk about that, but do that, check it out. I don't want to take away from that. So we're going to not have a recommendation today other than all the books we already recommended and talked about and the, and the movies as well. Um, fantastic stuff that you can check out. And so folks, you know, we, we do want you to connect with us. You know, you can go to the show notes again. You can email info at thinkorphan.com if you want to connect with us. Any, any guests. I love getting more and more guests. I mean, this is a guest that they reached out to us. So, and I'm so glad for you did because otherwise we wouldn't have had this great conversation. So please, please, if you had no people, if you are someone who you think would be a great fit for this show, reach out to us, let us know, and we'll, we'll get in touch with you and, and see if it's a fit. Um, also, if you have any questions, comments, any, any thoughts on how we can do this better, please share that with us. We would absolutely love to continue the conversation offline. So folks, with all of that, we hope that you're taking all that you're learning from this show and you're using it to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.